going to pray for us, and you're going to hit your mute buttons. <laughs> Thank you. I have to wait for Jim to get back. Jim, how do you do that? All right. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so good to call out to you, our God, and our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have life and hope, the forgiveness of our sins, redemption. Uh, Lord Jesus, we bow before you and worship you as King and Head of your church and this church. And I thank you for your precious people here at Wallace and the sacred responsibility you've given to me this morning to share with them the Word of God. We thank you together for Paul, how you used him as an apostle, particularly giving us Romans and explaining to us the reign of life, that being united to Christ, we are now risen with him, alive in Christ. Thanks for this portion we'll look at today, explaining uh, essentially his conversion. May this word help us. May it convict us. May it edify us, change our thinking, and inflame our hearts. So send your spirit, apart from whom there's really no good teaching this morning. We need you, Holy Spirit. Lead us into the truth. Bring us light. Bring us life. Bring us Jesus. We pray for his glory's sake. Amen. Well, friends, it will be very important for you to go to the church webpage and find the handout. That's what you want to look at because there's a chart there describing uh, Romans 7, 7 to 13. That's the portion we're in here in, in our study of the reign of life. And I want to start with this question. How do you know uh, either you become a believer or you're growing as a Christian? Because what the answer to that question really as uh, virtually the same. How do you know you're growing as a Christian? Well, you have an increased awareness of things. Increased awareness. Specifically, you know you're growing as a believer because you have increased awareness of God's holiness. So from before you were a believer to now that you're growing as a believer, you have a deepened sense of the holiness of God how utterly different he is from you, how much more righteous he is than you are. You have an awareness of how holy God is. Secondly, you have a higher awareness of his law, his standards, what he requires. To grow as a Christian is having an awareness that God is holier than you thought initially. His standards are higher than you ever imagined. And thirdly, Growing as a Christian, you have an increased awareness that your sin is deeper or more heinous than you thought. So to become a Christian as well as to grow as a Christian, there's increased awareness. Awareness of God's holiness, awareness that his standards are higher than you ever thought, and that your sin is more grave, it's more deep, deeper, it's more heinous than you thought. One way to put that is you've experienced the work of the law. And what we're going to see here in this passage is that the law stipulates sin, verse 7, 
it stimulates sin, verses 8 to 11, and it steers us from sin, 12 to 13. So how's that for three S's, for silly pastoral alliteration? Now that's at the top of your handout. The work of the law, it stimulates sin. It's, uh, excuse me, it stipulates sin, tells us what it is. It stimulates it, it provokes it, and it steers us from sin. This section here, Romans 7, 7 to 13, is one of the few New Testament passages that you would call is autobiographical. Paul is describing to us his own experience. You probably know that in the book of Acts, Paul's conversion is uh, detailed there in the early chapters of Acts. And then you get several uh, versions of it later as he's making defenses before different people at the end of Acts. But this passage is particularly personal as Paul relates to us how his experience of the law leads to his conversion. Really, he's become more aware of the holiness of God, that God's standards are higher than he thought, and his sin is more heinous than he thought. He's experienced that the work of the law is that it stipulates sin, it stimulates sin, and it steers us from sin. And just for your reference, you might compare and contrast Paul's autobiographical statements in Philippians 3, 1-11. That's another place where Paul talks about how he came to find the surpassing value of Christ above his own sense of righteousness. That's his conversion seen from one perspective. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12-17, Paul gives a sense of experiencing the mercy of God and being an emblem of God's surpassing grace. But there his conversion seen from several different perspectives. This one here in Romans uh, helps us experience, helps us see Paul's experience uh, from the perspective of how the law of God converted him. So look at the chart that I've got before you. He seems to lay out five distinct stages, and we'll look at three specific elements within each of those stages. We'll look at how he talks about the law. We'll look at how he talks about himself, I, and how he talks about sin. And remember that sin in the Bible is personified. It's spoken of as an entity. And you see this right from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 4, when Paul says to Cain, if you do well, will you not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not, do not. Sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you. There you go. Sin is personified. It's this thing. It's this entity. It's this enemy. It's this power, this reality within. So, we'll look at five stages, uh, and specifically with reference to three things. Paul talks about the law. He talks about himself, I, and then he uh, often talks about sin. Stage one, sort of the process of being converted. The law is inconsequential. He says in verse 9, I was alive apart from the law. What do we mean by the law is inconsequential? Regarding God's standards, the, the law is far off. Paul doesn't feel the weight of the demands. He's really untroubled as a human being by what the law requires of him. Kind of like a policeman bring a th- bringing a thousand parking tickets to a funeral and laying them on a casket. That dead person, 
uh, the, he ha- that dead person has no sense of the gravity of those traffic tickets. Okay, so the law is inconsequential. He says in that same state, stage one, I was alive. He says that in verse nine. I was alive. This is sort of the happy-go-lucky person. He's bebopping through life, fairly untroubled by what God demands. In the, in the early 70s, a book came into my household. I think it was a psychologist's last name of Harris called I'm Okay, You're Okay. So those of you who are older, I'm getting a smile from one of the... Yeah, it's both, of, both of the brothers in the room with me, Bob and Frank, remember this book. I'm Okay, You're Okay. This is a page right out of that book. I was alive. I'm, I'm a good person. This is generally the goal of pop psychology and secular education to get people to feel better about themselves. Paul feels pretty good about himself in stage one. The law is inconsequential. I was alive. He liked himself. He'd get up in the morning every day and every way. I'm getting better and better. And in this condition, he says, sin was dead. Verse 8, apart from the law, sin lies dead. He probably has a general sense of right and wrong. His conscience telling him, ah, oh, you know, don't stay out of trouble. A superficial sense of what it means to obey God. But he feels spiritual. Okay? Uh, you, you get the sense from the biography, the autobiography in Philippians 3, that he really believed he was a good law keeper. Okay, he described himself as to the law, blameless as a Pharisee. So, stage one, the law is inconsequential. He's alive, happy-go-lucky person. I'm okay, you're okay. And sin was dead. Stage two, the law came, verse nine, but when the commandment came, somehow, we don't know exactly what the external condition was, he begins to feel the weight of the law. Here's how I illustrate it. There's a, a, a park in the Shenandoah Valley called Sherando Lake. I've been there years past. And you have this little beach on the lake, and out in the middle of the lake there's an island. And you think, hey, it'd be fun to swim to that island. So that doesn't look that far. So off you go. You start swimming. And the more you swim, the further the island looks away from you. And what happens is you begin to feel the weight of the demand of swimming that much. You probably experienced this. Your arms start to get tired. Your legs start to get tired. And you feel the weight of gravity pulling you more and more into the water. So you have this this fantasy idea that I can swim to the island but you really had no appraisal of the demand. And about halfway there, you realize, I can't meet the demand of what it takes to swim to this island. And so for Paul, the law began to reveal his heart and sin in a deeper way. That's the point of verse 7. The law's the, the burning brilliance of the law as a son is burning away the fog of his own sense of being a good person. Again, most of us have a conscience. 
And our conscience kind of functions like this. When I was a kid uh, growing up in Richmond, Virginia, we were privileged to have an empty lot next to our house. It was too small for hardball and softball, but just the right size to play wiffle ball. So what would we do for the foul lines? You'd put down something for home plate, and you'd say, you see that tree down there? The first base line is between here and that tree. That's a nice estimate. So the wiffle ball goes up, falls down, ah, that's in bounds, that's out of bounds. Just this vague sense of what's foul and what's in play. Okay? That's the way we are sort of in our conscience. The law comes by setting a very specific line down. You cut it or you put the line down. That's what you used to do to make lines in sports fields. Now it's absolutely clear whether the ball was in or whether it was foul. That's what the law does. And Paul says then in verse 7, I came to know sin. What specific commandment was instrumental in Paul understanding how great a sinner he was? How high the standards of the law are? How holy God is? He says it was the 10th commandment. I would not have known coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the 10th commandment exposed his heart in a way none of the other commandments had. Why is that? Because in a sense, you can externalize the first nine commandments. You can't externalize the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is all about your heart and your motives. You shall not covet. So I can externally say, having committed adultery, having slept with another woman when I was married, I don't go to banks and rob them, I haven't murdered anybody, all the other commandments you can externalize. And of course, if you know anything about the Bible, that would be an awful way of thinking about the Ten Commandments. Jesus takes these and on the Sermon of the Mount exposes how these commandments go deep into our hearts, every one of them, if you have any doubt, take the Westminster Confession, larger catechism, and watch how they uh, delineate all the demands and prohibitions of the Ten Commandments. But for Paul, it's the Tenth Commandment. Somehow in a Bible study, somehow reading the Bible, we, we don't know exactly the circumstances. The light went off when it came to the Tenth Commandment because the Tenth Commandment exposed essentially I'm dissatisfied with God himself. The Tenth Commandment shows that I don't love God enough to not desire what he's forbidden. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, shows me that I don't trust him enough to enjoy everything he has given to me. So it's the Tenth Commandment, as it were, that brings me back to the First Commandment, you shall have no other gods, and it exposes my heart as idolatrous. When I'm coveting, I'm essentially in rebellion against God. It's like parents going to great expense, spending lots of money to set before their kids a feast of their favorite and most expensive and delicious foods. And when the dinner bell is rung, the kids come in the house and turn their backs and go across the street and start feeding out of trash cans. That's essentially what we're doing when we're coveting. We're turning our backs on the goodness of God, God's delight to provide for us on his terms versus our own. So Paul says, I came to know sin. 
I am my worst problem. It's me. It's within me. So the law has become a precise MRI, a diagnostic instrument to show me what's really going on in my heart. And I'm no longer simply dimly aware of my uh, sinfulness. Oh, I have faults. No. At, at, at heart, I'm dissatisfied with the person of God himself. That's the ultimate treason, isn't it? The ultimate treason, the ultimate treachery. Stage two. The law came. I came to know sin. What a blessing. And of course, you're never going to know sin if you don't know what the law of God is. That's why we need to be people who are reading the Bible and we're, you know, people are converted by being confronted with God, what God's standards are. Stage three. The law condemns. Verse 10, the law proved to be death. So in this stage, Paul now realizes that the standards can't make him righteous. Up until this point in his life, he's taken the law of God and used it as an instrument of self-justification. Oh, God says do this. I do that. I feel good about myself. God must accept me. I'm basically a person who pays his taxes, doesn't speed too much, stays out of trouble. I've never killed anybody. God must accept me. No, now the law proved to be death. It only showed me how inept I am. Again, the lights have gone off. The, the, the law has burned away the fog of his sense of self-goodness. Now, to use his other terminology, it's become a mirror into which I see how dirty I am. So if I had markings all over my, like if I was sleeping and someone come put magic bark blocks all over my face and I hadn't looked at my face in the mirror this morning, I could be looking at you and I have no idea that all this stuff was on my face. No, the law is this mirror into which I look and go, wow, I never see that, but for the law. So the law produces a state of mind in which it's a necessary preparation for receiving the gospel. You really don't have good news. Somebody else kept the law for me. Unless you have the bad news, I can't keep this standard. Okay, stage three. The law condemns. Then he says in verse nine, I died. What does he mean? I believe what he means is the good person he fashioned himself to be came crushing down. The moral stature that he had was actually a fantasy, he now realizes. He says, sin deceived me. And now, uh, now he, he's owned his depravity. He realizes he can't save himself. He's helpless to truly give God the obedience God requires, right? God's more holy than I thought. The demands of God are much higher than I thought. I am much more thoroughly incapable than I previously thought of giving God what he required. So this fantasy picture he had of God comes crumbling down. This fantasy had of his own righteousness comes crumbling down. And this doesn't happen necessarily instantaneously in people's lives. It can happen over a period of time, constant exposure to the word of God, to the preaching of God's law, constant exposure to who God is. That's, this is why in our preaching we need to continually keep before the people of God the demands of the law as well as the gospel, who God is, how sinful we are. All of that should be consistent in our teaching and our preaching. So he says, 
I died. And what happened to sin? Verse 9, sin sprang to life. Because the law came, before the law came, sin lay dormant. It sort of had a covert operation. Before you're converted, you're really not aware of sin operating within you. But the law has a way of coming in and awakening sin. A monster's been awakened with you. Twice Paul uses this terminology. Sin took opportunity through the commandment. It's a military term. It means that the law, sin used the law as a base of operation. So it's, uh, previously, sin deceived him into thinking what? Into thinking sin was pleasurable and that he could keep the law of God. Now, that, it, it, that is gone. That's, that's a fantasy. That's gone. So let me put it this way. When the law came, it killed Paul, the proud Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee who, according to Luke 18, stood in the temple and thanked God that he wasn't like other people, those swindlers, idolaters, and adulterers. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the law came, that proud Pharisee, Paul alludes to in Philippians 3, that person who thanked God that he wasn't so bad as other people, that person died. The law slew this happy sinner who, 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 uh, who, couldn't, who had no sense of who God really was. The law burned away, as it were, Paul's uh, cheerful assumption of innocence. So he experienced a death to self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-reliance, self-satisfaction. In today's terms, what happened is he went from being from saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a sinner, to I'm a sinner, and by the grace of God, I'm a Christian. Or in today's terms, he went from saying, the person who says, I'm religious and I go to church, to saying, even my best efforts fell miserably short of giving God what God is owed and requires. Okay. Stage four, what happened? The law, and this isn't in our text, it's what we looked at several weeks ago. The law is nullified. He realizes he has a law keeper in Jesus Christ, and that's verse four. You've died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Christ is my law keeper, and because Christ has kept the law, the law can make no claim on me. So if you woke up this morning in union with Jesus Christ, and the law comes knocking at your door, and it says, you owe God perfection. You owe God absolute obedience. You can say, hey, in principle, you're right. That's been paid for me by Jesus Christ. So when the law comes knocking, send it to Jesus. And the law will look at Jesus and say, I'm satisfied. And if you belong to Jesus, the law is satisfied. You owe God nothing. Jesus has already paid it. Now, does that lead to antinomianism? No, because we've already worked our way through chapter 6. Having been released legally from the law, this is verse 6 of chapter 7, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captives, we serve in the new way in the spirit. No, now we are those who, because we're in union with Christ, 
life is in us. We've been raised from the place where we're slaves to sin. All we want to do is sin. There's a new affection. There's a new motivation. There's a new drive. There's a new love in us put there by the Spirit, a love for Jesus. And so our relationship to sin is now, it's been dethroned. But that takes us all the way back into chapter 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. When you understand the gospel, what Jesus has done for you, how he set you free, your next thought isn't, oh good, let me do whatever I want. Your next thought is, my goodness, what a Savior. What does it look like to love him? What does it look like to serve him? What does it look like to be like him? Those are the questions you begin to ask when the gospel truly uh, hits your heart. Not that we don't have fits of antinomianism. We do. Not that we don't have fits of moralism. We do. Our hearts fall into this. The, the, uh, our hearts are like Teflon. When the gospel hits, if we don't work hard to keep it there, it slides off. So we need the gospel every day. We need to pray the gospel into our hearts every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly, right? The moment I think, oh, now I really believe Jesus is my righteousness. I have nothing to prove. I'm free by grace. I'm free to love God for the right reason, by his power. As soon as we get it, we wake up the next morning, maybe the gospel slid off our hearts. We need the gospel constantly. I mean, that's why Paul's writing to Christians and he's giving them the gospel, unpacking all the glories of the gospel. Stage five, the law, now that I have the right relationship with the law, reveals to me what is good, holy, and righteous. That's verse 12. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What's he doing? He's answering the question he raised at verse seven. What should we say then? That the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, it wouldn't have known sin. So he's anticipating the objection that somehow we're going to cast the law in a negative light. We've been released from the law. Christ is our law keeper. Does that mean we can just completely forget about the demands of God? No. He comes back to it in verse 12. The law is holy. What makes it holy? It comes from a holy God. It's a reflection of the holy heart of God. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Why? God is holy, righteous, and good. And again, Saved people have an increasing desire to please the Lord that saved them, to be like the Lord that saved them. And where do we find that detailed? In his law. That's why the law is good, holy, and righteous. The law now helps me in my conflict with sin, even though it still might try to deceive, sin still might try to deceive me. The law answers the question, what do I do differently now that I'm forgiven. What does it look like to live a life that glorifies Jesus? That's the new passion of our hearts. Law-keeping as a religious person is glorifying yourself. Law-keeping as a Christian is to bring glory to the Jesus who saved you. So that's why Paul goes on to say in 22, we'll look at this in subsequent weeks, Paul Cornwell is going to be teaching us next Sunday at 9.15, Paul says, I delight in the law. Why? Jesus is teaching me what it's like. Jesus is revealing to me his will. Jesus is showing me his mind. Nothing could be more precious than a person for whom Jesus has laid down his life. And then Paul says, uh, with respect to sin, what does the law do? Well, it shows sin to be utterly sinful, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Is it the law's fault? Is it the law's fault? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, 
and to the commandment might become sinful beyond measure or soon to be utterly sinful. Thank God that we know how wretched sin is because the law shows us that. And that's a good, that's a good place to be. To be deeply confronted, existentially, acutely aware of how sinful sin is and only the law can show us that. Now I want to reflect with you um, that, that in people's conversions, people's spiritual journeys, they often come to an intersection where they begin to feel what Paul is describing here. They begin to feel the weight of the law. And in my pastoral experience, I want to show you there are four typical responses that what happens when people begin to come under conviction. Come under conviction. I say this because as I've pastored churches for, for three or more decades, I've gotten to know people have come to my churches and then they just kind of disappear. And I, you, you, you wonder what's going on. And sometimes I think the answer is, I don't always know, sometimes I think the answer is, they're coming under conviction, they can't stand it, and they don't want to keep coming to a place where they're under conviction. Now, Lord willing, whenever they come under conviction, they should also hear about Jesus. If you have a church that's only preaching the law and not the gospel, that's awful. And you can't preach the gospel truly without the law. So you just kind of wonder what happened. Let me describe four things that people typically do when they come under conviction. One, sometimes, again, they're beginning to feel, oh, I'm not the person I always thought I was. God's more holy than he was. The requirements of the law are more deeper. They're beginning to come under the conviction. Right? They're sort of coming to the front door of that experience. One reaction is to run from God. To continue in denial. Just keep preaching, oh, no, no, I'm a good person. And of course, this is the supreme act of foolishness, thinking you don't need God. Denying who God is, and that you were made for God. So some people run from God. Very dangerous place to be. Second thing at this intersection of beginning to be convicted. Some people run to more rules. They get religion. They say, Okay, I realize there's something wrong with me, but I'm going to start doing more of the right things. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to clean up my act. That will either make you a self-justifying, arrogant Pharisee. This is the way that Pharisees are presented to us largely in the New Testament. They thought they were good people. They looked down. They They viewed with contempt those who didn't have their life together. It will either, being more and more religious, make you a proud, arrogant person, or it will put you in despair because you'll know in, deep in your heart, I'm not living the way I should. So, at this intersection, some people just run from God, be their own God. Some people run to more rules, they get religion. Thirdly, some people run from the rules. They still want God. But basically, they lower the standards. They create a religion in which they're still succeeding. They return to the happy-go-lucky person. That's where you just find a church that doesn't preach the demands of the law of God. Find a church that doesn't preach the holiness of God. Find a church that doesn't preach sin. That's what you do. And unfortunately, there's too many churches out there. But how can you be a true church if you don't preach the holiness of God, the depths of the demands of the law of God, the sinfulness of sin, and the glory of Christ as the remedy for all of it? Run from God, run to more rules, run from the rules, and what do all those three things have in common? You never have to deal with God. You don't need a cross. 
and you don't take Jesus seriously. The fourth option, you come, you begin to get convicted, you run to Jesus. So back to the image I used earlier, the person swimming out to the island in the lake. What do you need? You need a complete rescue. You're going to sink and drown if Jesus doesn't come and rescue you from your peril. So you run to Jesus and what do you find? Someone who kept the law of God for you. Somebody who paid the penalty of your law breaking in your place. And somebody who brings you life from another realm. That's the gospel. Let's finish by looking at this uh, little chart I have at the bottom of your handout, which tries to compare some of the differences between religion and Christianity. Living by uh, religious duty and rules and whatnot, and living by grace through faith in Jesus. Just trying to tease some of these differences out for you. Religion lives by merit. It's up to what you do. You're rewarded for your performance. Merit. True Christianity lives by faith. Excuse me, faith lives by mercy. You don't get what you deserve. You're overcome by God's mercy. You relish God's mercy. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my heart fast. One of the songs we sing in Indelible Grace. Thy mercy, my God. You live by mercy. And what mercy does is it melts your heart and keeps it longing for more. It doesn't make you proud. It keeps you dependent on grace and mercy. So it's a difference between merit thinking you should get what you deserve, and mercy, longing to not get what you deserve. Because you're confronted with the demands of the law of God. You can't give God what he requires. God is way too holy. If God drew near, to, drew near to you and your sinfulness and his holiness, you'd be consumed. No, Jesus has provided this fountain of mercy for you. Religion lives by duty. So the first impulse of the heart of a religious person is, what do we need to do? What's my duty? The first impulse of a person living by the gospel is thanksgiving. You know that tone, that note of thanksgiving in the passage Paul Cornwell has the whole church thinking about together. Colossians 3, Tothi 17. Be thankful. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father. Through Him, thankfulness, thankfulness, thankfulness. You're just overcome with gifts, with privileges with the goodness of God, the kindness of God. You're thankful. That's the first impulse of your heart. Thank, thank you. You haven't given me what I deserve. Thank you. Religion basically is a bargain with God. You're obligated to me. I'm doing my best. You owe me. Faith base, uh, lives by a substitute. Oh, Jesus, you've given all that I am. Uh, I can't possibly uh, complete this bargain with God. When Paul says... Uh, the, the commandment was meant to give life back in our Romans 7 passage. What he's saying is, is that if you could keep the Ten Commandments, life would be the reward. There was a sense in which, because look at Jesus. He kept the Ten he kept the law of God perfectly. He had a life to give away. In fact, and that's the, the irony of the gospel. 
the only person who deserved to never die because of his behavior. Jesus lived perfectly. He, he, he earned from the commandments what they would give, life. He took death instead of it to give us his righteousness and to take the penalty for our sins. So we have a substitute in Jesus. Christianity is the one religion of the substitute. We can't do it. He's done it in our stead. Religion usually lives ultimately by doubt. What's the question? Well, if I owe God this, have I really done enough? And you might put doubt slash fear. Fear. A deep sense in our souls. Ah, I'm in trouble with God. I'm in trouble. A deep fear, doubt. Have I done enough? Why does living by faith create assurance? Because you look at Jesus and the Holy Spirit testifies, that's enough. I can't add anything to Jesus' perfect law-keeping. It's complete. If what I owe God is a test, Jesus took the test, he got a hundred. I don't need extra credit points. Perfection has been earned by Jesus. If Jesus has died and cried out on the cross to tell us die, the debt is paid, it is finished, I can't add anything to that. There's nothing left for me to pay. There's therefore no condemnation for those who belong to Christ because there's nothing to be condemned. Jesus was condemned in your place. This produces assurance. Accurate appraisals of who Jesus is for you should bring our hearts peace and assurance. That's where we began the study, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll pick this up again at the, at the end of 7 and the beginning of 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our troubled consciences can only be assuaged by looking to Christ. What does religion produce? Oftentimes, arrogance. If we think we're succeeding, we feel superior to other people. We feel good about ourselves. True faith always produces humility. Everything I have is a gift. Left to myself, I'd be an utter, complete wreck as a human being. I'm far better than I would ever be on my own. Religion is about human guidance. We invariably try to stick man-made laws and rules into this. This is what the Pharisees did. Jesus said you put uh, burdens on people they can't keep. They add it to God's law. True faith loves God's standards. They reflect the heart of God. You want nothing more, nothing less. Faith says, I want the heart of God. I don't want things added to that. I don't want less than that. So there's a relishing in the divine standards. That's why Paul says the law, I delight in what is good, righteous, and holy. Religion is sanctioned by the devil. No wonder Jesus called the most religious people on the face of the earth at that time a brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. They were very religious and very lost. He says in uh, John 8, you're of your father the devil. The religion was devilish. Faith is thwarted by the devil. It's hard. Uh, Satan will at every turn try to uh, dissolve your faith, try to cloud Christ, try to convince you you can be good on your own, <clears throat> try to spurn the good and generous and merciful heart of God. Religion, God tends to be small because your focus is on yourself. You can't focus, make two things big at the same time. You're making yourself big, therefore God is small. In faith, God is lofty. You get larger and larger senses of how great God is. In religion, God tends to be far away. 
True faith says, no, God has come down. Jesus has entered into my brokenness. Jesus has suffered for me. Jesus has uh, come into my heart by his spirit to enter into my brokenness, to weep with me, to, to, un- to heal my brokenheartedness. More about that in the sermon in a little bit. And religion uh, trusts outward ritual. We feel good about our... I remember as a kid going to church and uh, I was religious. I wasn't a believer. I wasn't born again. We went to an Episcopal church here in, in McLean around the Beltway and worked through all the things in the prayer book. It was a whole lot of ritual. And when it was done, I just felt this relief. It wasn't spiritual. It was sort of this man-made, okay, went to the ritual, I must be okay. Talk about deception. How sad. And yet... Cramer had put all the gospel in the, in, in, the, in the liturgy of the Episcopal Church. I just didn't have eyes to see it or ears to hear it. God hadn't given me a new heart. So just went through the ritual. Ritual makes you feel good about yourself. You trust that. What does faith do? It trusts promises. God makes promises to us in the gospel. Okay, we are about out of time. So in two weeks, we're going to finish Romans 7. If you want to read ahead, study that. This is uh, not, uh, it's, it's not uncontroversial because Christians all over, Reformed Christians all over the spectrum have differing views of exactly who this person is Paul is describing. I'll take one view and uh, I'll handle it with uh, hopefully some humble hands and try to give a certain view on it. But if you want to read ahead, that's what's next. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that your word reveals to us a religion of grace through faith, trusting another whose name is Jesus, whose perfect life is enough for us, whose death on the cross is all we need to be cleansed and forgiven of our sins. It's all outside of us. It's done for us. Thank you. Oh, how we need to be dissolved disavowed of our self-trust, self-reliance, self-righteousness, self-deception. Send your spirit. Use the word of God. Use our worship to burn away the fog of all these phantoms, these false pictures of God we have, these low pictures of the law of God we have, this inflated sense of self. Burn that away. And in its place, show us the glory of Christ. And looking to Christ, we would be transformed from one degree of glory into another. And this by the Spirit. Send your Spirit that we might enjoy Him and relish this gospel. And by it, serve you with great zeal, great confidence, great hope, great purpose, great humility, great other-centeredness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Thank Thank you. you.